You're listening to Living Healthy Longer by the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging. Hi, everyone. On today's show, we're going to learn about biobanks, which are collections of biological samples that are stored for use in medical research. Biobanking is becoming increasingly important in research because it gives researchers access to very meaningful data from large numbers of very different people. The hope is that biobanks will help researchers discover new biomarkers for disease or new associations between genes and traits. So today, I'm talking with Meredith Guerrero, Chief Operating Officer of the Colorado Longitudinal Study, which is a developing biobank that intends to look beyond DNA to study aging science and human health. I hope you enjoy. I'm your host, Hannah Hallisker, and this is Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging at Colorado State University. Hi, I'm Meredith Guerrero. I am the Chief Operating Officer of the Colorado Longitudinal Study, um, and I am working closely with our CEO, Phyllis Wise, and Nicole Earhart, the Director of the Center for Healthy Aging at CSU, to launch our first engagement site um, at the Center for Healthy Aging the first quarter of 2022. The story I want to share is actually a personal story about my dad, and it's it, it helps for me at least to make biobanking this big globular idea more personal and relatable. Um, so my dad was diagnosed with lung cancer in 2010, um, and we lived in Boston, and he was able to get world class treatment at one of the you know, preeminent teaching hospitals in the world. And on his first day of chemotherapy, I remember sitting in his oncologist's office and the doctor basically said, you know, I'm really sorry, but the, the drugs to treat your cancer have not improved since the 1970s. I was just floored. I couldn't believe that with all the advances in medicine and technology, that there was not um, new advances for my dad's cancer treatment. Um, So that was just discouraging. And then I remember hearing steps coming, running down the hallway and an out of breath intern ducked his head into the room and asked my dad if he would be willing to participate in a clinical trial, if he would be willing to biobank his samples. The reason that the intern had been running is because in order to participate in this research, they needed to have a blood sample from my dad before he had started chemo. So they caught him just in time. And I just remember my dad's shoulders relaxing and he took a deep breath and he said, you know, at least something good might come of all of this. So my dad lived for nine months. He went through aggressive chemotherapy and he still ended up dying of lung cancer. But I know that his samples were banked and are being used in research that hopefully will um, create more effective therapeutics for other people who have lung cancer. And when I think about the timing of when they got his sample, he was already had stage four lung cancer. And I think, well, that's so late. What if we had had samples of his a year before or three years before or five years before, 
could there have been um, a diagnostic that could have found it when it was in stage 1A, when it's almost almost totally curable or has a much higher cure rate? Um, and so the reason I'm so excited about Coles, and I hope to be able to explain some of those details to you, is to me, this is this is the preventative or the, the proactive approach to addressing disease instead of this reactionary waiting until people are already sick and dying. Yes, thank you for sharing that story. And I, I think that's a great introduction to biobanking. It kind of gets at some of the foundation of what biobanking is, which is the collection of samples for research purposes. But I wonder if you can give us a grander definition and just like set the foundation for us of what biobanking actually is. Absolutely. Um, I think what is so um, exciting about biobanking and why this is really the direction that um, research and uh, resources are going is that biobanking is the combination of biospecimens and other information, other clinical information or lifestyle or behavior information. It used to be um, that there would be repositories of blood samples or tissue samples or whatnot, and researchers would study um, biology without understanding any context from the people that um, gave those samples. And I think now, as, as um, the academic community and the health community and everybody is realizing just how important behavior and lifestyle and environment are to health outcomes. We're realizing that we need to capture that information as well as the biological sample. Um, so when when people talk about biobanks, it really is the combination of a biological specimen and the associated information from a participant's life. Um, so you mentioned the, the longitudinal piece. I don't know if I should just launch right into what is a bit unique about Coles, if that's all right. Yes, let's let's just go there. You know, Colorado Longitudinal Study is a biobank. So, yes, tell us about it. What is it that you work on? Well, what makes the Colorado Longitudinal Study so unique is this longitudinal element, really. So to be a biobank, you could have just one time point. It could be that there's, you know, one biological sample and associated health information, either from that time point, like my dad saying, okay, this is a blood sample from somebody just diagnosed with stage four lung cancer, or you could have um, samples taken serially over time. And a lot of biobanks today have taken one biological sample and then have longitudinal data around people's um, health and behaviors and outcomes, but they don't most biobanks don't have more than one biological sample. And what I think is really, really um, holding back the ability to create, develop earlier diagnostics is that we don't have that biological sample of the earliest stages of disease. So the Colorado Longitudinal Studies goal is to begin recruiting participants mostly when they're healthy. If As long as you're a Colorado resident, you can participate in Coles, which is also pretty cool. This is not a really, really narrowly defined project. Um, but we want people who are healthy or have a chronic disease to participate, and we'll collect a blood sample once a year for 10 years or longer. We're going to have a relationship. We're going to get intimate. You know, We're going to um, 
know what's happening to our participants over time um, at the individual and aggregate level. And then hopefully many of our participants will stay healthy and will be able to study healthy aging, but some participants will become sick. And then the idea is to look back through their samples. So, okay, if in year five, somebody is diagnosed with cancer or diabetes or cognitive decline, can we look back into their last five years of samples and find an earlier biomarker that we could have identified um, for an earlier diagnosis when treatment could have been curative or, you know, we could have prevented people from um, the symptoms that brought them to the doctor in the first place. Um, so I'm just excited that the Colorado Longitudinal Study, by collecting prospectively a biological sample once a year um, from a large number of Coloradans, is just going to be this incredible world-class resource to find earlier, um, earlier biomarkers for disease. Yeah, I think that's so important. Um, I wonder if you can tell us about, you know, Colorado longitudinal studies or COLs, use those terms interchangeably. Um, it has this once a year blood draw, lots of biological specimens over the course of, you know, 10 years. And that's different. Like you said, that's different from a normal biobank. So I wonder if you could talk about some of the other biobanks that exist out there that you kind of, you know, drew some insights from when you were, you know, designing the longitudinal study. Absolutely. Um, and this is actually a, an area where I'm so grateful that this community of researchers who care about creating a resource have been very generous with us in terms of um, teaching us what they've learned either through best practices or through, you know, vicariously saying, oh, that didn't work. Don't, don't go there. Um, so we've been able to meet with a number of biobanks. I think one of the most prominent in the world is called the UK Biobank. They started in um, the early 2000s and they recruited 500,000 um, participants in the UK. They took one biological sample and they've actually been following them with surveys ever since then. Um, and they set up one of the first fully automated biorepositories. It's this huge freezer that we went and visited in, in um, England. Um, and, you know, when that biobank was started, it was really when people thought that DNA and your genes were going to be the, the magic cure for everything. We were going to understand everything that needed to be understood about biology by understanding DNA. And um, DNA doesn't really change over your lifetime unless something goes terribly wrong. So the DNA that you have when you're a child should be the same as the DNA you have when you're an old old person. Um, and so in that sense, it's not a good marker for what your current state of health is. It can hopefully tell us predictive things, but it can't tell us what's actually going on in our bodies. So this one sample that the UK Biobank has, while it can be really valuable, and there's been a lot of research done with that Biobank, um, they're not getting at current state of health issues with the biological samples that they have. There are a couple other biobanks. The Canadian Longitudinal Study on Aging is an absolutely incredible study. 50,000 participants across Canada. Um, I believe they're tracking 30,000 of them with every few years they're coming in for sort of a battery of tests um, and a, a blood sample. Um, 
And then there's a study called the Baltimore Longitudinal Study on Aging here in the U.S. They've been going since 1950 or so, and it's an incredible resource as well. And they do a large battery of tests, but they have about 1,300 people at any given time in their study. So it's still hard to um, extrapolate population level um, uh, phenotypes and, and biological changes when you have such a small population. Um, the other uh, biobank you might have heard of is called the All of Us program. Um, it was started under the Obama administration uh, originally as the Preci Precision Medicine Initiative, and it later changed to All of Us when they started recruiting participants. Um, their goal is to have a million participants all across the U.S., and they are planning to be longitudinal, but again, they are collecting one blood sample and they're not sure when they're gonna go back for another one. And they're trying to get people to answer surveys. And there's actually no representation in Colorado of blood samples for the All of Us project. So um, they've been absolutely wonderful in terms of sharing what they've learned um, as they've built their infrastructure and started engaging with participants. But we look to them as more of a collaborator than um, certainly not competition and hopefully not overlap. We're, we're bringing different, unique um, components of each of our projects that we hope to be able to harmonize at some point for research purposes. Right. So you toured these other biobanks, you researched these other biobanks and how they got set up. And I just wonder, what did you guys choose to do differently? And, and are there any particular studies or diseases that you're interested in focusing on that really makes the Colorado Longitudinal Study different from other biobanks? Certainly. Um, you know, we talked with a lot of these biobanks, and we also talked with researchers that would be accessing samples from biobanks. And one of the things that came up over and over again was the lack of diversity. And I'm sure you know this, but um, you know, until until a woman was the head of the NIH, all research basically at the NIH was done on men between the ages of 18 and 35. And then whatever was discovered um, in terms of therapeutics or or diagnostics was then prescribed to women and children and people of color. And just assuming that all of our bodies would re respond the same way as um, a middle-class white man. And that's just simply not the case. Um, and, you know, when we went to the UK Biobank, they were very honest. They said, you know, we were trying to get numbers. And what that meant is that we predominantly had middle-class people who were involved in our national health care system. And we skew with more women than men. And it's almost entirely Caucasian. Um, and when we talked to researchers, they said, you know, we don't need another white, bi all white biobank. We really need diversity. And so one of the things that we're really striving for with the Colorado Longitudinal Study is to be equitable and inclusive from the get-go. Um, and I think that's one of the biggest challenges. People are always telling us how hard that is. And we acknowledge that we have a lot of um, trust building to do. Um, but I think it also comes with this authenticity that we really want to make this a Colorado-wide initiative, and that means representing the diversity in our state. Um, so we're doing a lot where we are investing our time and energy in um, working with communities that are typically uh, ignored or you know, 
not not included in the first round of I would say of um, engagement. So that when we go to recruit in Fort Collins, we're excited that that's going to be our first location. Um, we want to make sure that we are representative of the Hispanic and Latino community that's up there. We want to make sure that all of our materials are available in English and in Spanish, that we have people who are um, native Spanish speakers, um, because we want this to, we want everybody to feel like they belong here and they're being listened to and they're a part of it. Um, so I think that's really the the biggest thing from a, how can we do this better? How can we build on what's been done in the past and how can we make it better? Yeah, absolutely. And it's such an important initiative that you all have. And I'm very glad that that's part of like just the baseline that you all have for your study that you're setting out with that intention rather than, you know, a lot of studies realize it years down the road that <laughs> they're not diverse and representative. So it's good to have as part of your foundation. Um, so something else you mentioned early on is that biobanking, especially for Kohl's, uh, really focuses on all the factors that come along with a biological specimen because that specimen is not just, you know, representative of all the proteins and DNA and RNA that's in it, but it's also a time point of like this person's life, the environment that they live in, and the social lifestyles that they have around them. It, it's representative of all those things. So I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about what we call social determinants of health and why why that's so important to encompass when you're biobanking. Absolutely. Um, yes, this term social determinants of health, and I'm using air quotes, but it really has become um it's something people talk about a lot and not everybody really understands. So I think it's really great to sort of define it as well as articulating why it's so incredibly important. Um, it was actually the World Health Organization um, published a report uh, in 2008 say, um, entitled Closing the Gap in a Single Generation. Um, I'm paraphrasing. Closing the Gap in a Generation, I think. Um, and the idea is that our biology is not that different. It's kind of different, but not that different. But our lifestyles and our behaviors and the you know, the communities that we grow up in are different enough that it changes our health outcomes dramatically. So you might have heard the um, the phrase that health is more related to your zip code than your genetic code. Um, and so that's very much encompassed by the social determinants of health. And another thing sort of in early public health was this sort of like, it was almost like victim blaming, sort of being like, oh, you just have to change your behavior and everything will get better. And I think the emphasis of social determinants of health, of course, behavior and lifestyle are, are components of health and well-being. Um, but understanding that there are these structural um, and cultural uh sort of this framework that we live in that also impacts our health outcomes. And those are not things that, you know, you can't, you can't blame the individual for that. If you want to make systemic healthy changes, you need to look at those cultural and environmental factors. So one of the things that I learned early on when studying social determinants is it's really good to have a framework. Um, so there are a few different ones that are quite good, but I really like the one by the Kaiser Family Foundation. Um, all of these social determinant frameworks try to um, 
try to explain or visualize with a diagram or something how the environment and lifestyle and behaviors are interacting to affect health and, and health trajectories. So I'll just let you know that the, or I'll, I'll just say the, the six domains that the Kaiser Family Foundation really articulates um, as being the pillars in social determinants or economic stability. Um, so that has to do with your employment and your income, but also your debt um, and neighborhood and physical environment. So you might live near a park, but if that park isn't well lit at night and it's not safe to be at that park, that context is all important. Um, so it's not just how you know, do you live near a park? It's how walkable is your community? Is there public transportation? That type of thing. Um, education is a big component of social determinants, but it's not just do you have a degree or an advanced degree? It's what's your literacy level? Um, you know, often in research, we try to um, we try to be as inclusive as possible. So we write materials to a fifth grade reading level because it doesn't matter if you if you are participating, if you can't understand that's not, that's not good. Um, food, so is another pillar. So do you have access to healthy foods? Do you live in a food desert? Do you go to bed being hungry or afraid that you're going to miss a meal and, and not have enough to eat? And then your community and your social context. Um, this one I think is really so critically important because there's so many resiliency factors there too. So social integration and community engagement, whether you feel discrimination, um, and what you have as support systems. So, you know, people who have strong community um, groups and strong faith-based groups, these are things that have been shown even when there's you're surrounded by things like discrimination. If you have a strong support system, there's a huge um, health benefit to that. And lastly is the healthcare system. It's interesting that the healthcare system is last. Um, but it really actually is a small piece of our health and our health outcomes. But when you're engaging in the healthcare system from the social determinant standpoint, it's do you have doctors and physicians that speak your language, that look like you, that understand what you're going through? Do you have um, access to care? Not just is there somebody available, but what's the quality of the care that you're actually receiving? So those six pillars make up the framework of social determinants. And then the whole idea, again, back to this, your um, health is more related to your zip code than your genetic code. Those environmental and individual factors, those have 60%, roughly 60% to do with your health outcomes. And your genes might have you know, might have 30%. This is based on Kaiser Family Foundation's work. So, you know, I'm quoting them. Um, and your healthcare really has 10% uh, to do with your health trajectories. So it's so important that we understand all of those things. I mean, if a biobank or a repository is only focusing on genetics and DNA, you're missing a huge, huge piece of understanding the health spectrum. Yes, I think I it puts in the context why it's important, you know, your longitudinal study design is taking a biospecimen annually 
and and you know these lifestyle factors and social factors are, are going to change you know my life 10 years ago is not what my life is today and and so i i, I again think it's so important that the longitudinal aspect of your biobank is is representative of these social determinants and and just for listeners too who have been listening to the show for a while we've we've kind of already gotten a grasp of this concept a little bit from some of the episodes we've had in terms of like, we've had several researchers come on this podcast and just talk about why it's so important that you have a social circle that's, you know, healthy and and you preserve your energy and you're very intentional about how you spend your time and who you're with and what you're doing. Um, I mean, even going back to our most recent episode about caloric restriction with Dr. Devin Wall, he talked about how, you know, when you don't eat enough, that's a stress on your body. And he was talking about it from the sense of like a longevity booster, a health span booster. But think about it from somebody who doesn't have access to foods. You know, they're malnourished when they're not eating enough. And so obviously that's going to have a different biological signature than somebody who is, you know, reducing their calories to be able to live a longer life. Or going back to Dr. Gloria Luong's episode talking about, you know, people who are lonelier don't live as long as people who have these abundant social circles. And so I think we've heard some of these concepts kind of spoken about in different ways on this show. And I, I think your biobank is just a great overall example of, you know, we can study these concepts. We can see that these ways that we live in our daily lives um, have an effect on us at a biological level. And, and you're, you're characterizing that. That's what you, you're setting out to do. Absolutely. And I think what you were pointing out about sort of stress um, especially just as one example, it's not that it is good or bad. It's that it's a spectrum. It's a continuum. And so what we're trying to capture is like, what is a healthy amount of stress for the body? And what is um, what type of chronic stress is really detrimental to the body? And I think in general, so, social determinants, what I think is so important to understand is it's not negative. It's not always negative. It's really just these things are all exist on a spectrum, and we're trying to find out what are the factors that are negative and what are the factors that create resiliency. Um, and knowing that it's all all mixed together, and it's important to be able to tease them all out. And exactly like you said, part of that is you have to follow people over time, because you're right. I mean, I'm so grateful. I'm not the same. I'm not the same person I was ten years ago. Um, and I don't know who I'm going to be, you know, 10 years from now, but I'm excited. Um, but who knows? Exactly. Yes. Yes. So I, I wonder if we can talk about the aging component of your biobank in terms of like, how can a biobank help us to understand diseases of aging? And does Kohl's have any, you know, plans or studies in mind around that concept? Absolutely. Um, you know, aging is something that is surprisingly um, not as well understood as I had expected, considering we all age and we all want to live hopefully into healthy old age. Um, what surprised me most when when we started working on this project was that there really isn't a good definition for healthy aging. Um, the definition of health really is just the absence of disease. But what does that look like over time? I mean, you can be frail and barely independent and still be absent of disease. 
Um, so one of the things I'm most excited about for Kohl's is the ability to truly study healthy aging and what does a healthy trajectory look like versus an unhealthy trajectory. And I know on your podcast, Nicole Earhart has spoken about like, what is that? What is that point in time where somebody deviates into an unhealthy status? And can we, can we get right ahead of that? Um, and I think that's what I'm so excited about for, for Kohl's, for the potential. I think one of the biggest challenges is, you know, when you think about the diseases that really affect an older population, when you think about um, cardiovascular disease and cognitive decline and um, diabetes and just myriad of, of conditions, cancers, um, the biggest challenge continues to be what is the earliest time point that we could have identified this and done something meaningful to change the outcome? Um, and when we think about cognitive decline, for example, the things that are changing in your brain could be happening a decade before you actually show any symptoms. And so it's really hard to um, treat a disease when you can't really even tell how it's developing. Um, so Coles is working on projects right now um, or we're, we're designing projects right now with collaborators um, to be able to study cardiovascular disease and diabetes and, and cognitive decline um, in such a way that we can see the earliest, earliest markers of these diseases and say, okay, we know for some people, a lot of people who have diabetes, telling them to eat healthier and lose weight is a good therapeutic option but it's not the right thing for everybody. It doesn't work the same across the board. So what is the variation in human biology and the, the interactions with the environment that make that the right therapy for some people, but not for others? So I think having um, a large cohort of participants that live in a relatively confined geographic, geographic area is what's going to help us really tease out what the most important factors are in the diseases that impact aging. Um, so I think Coles has a lot of potential to just make huge advances in the study of aging. Right. And I think a, another piece of this whole, you know, purpose of a biobank is that you all don't know some of the studies you are going to be able to be able to do one day. I mean, that's the beauty of a biobank is that researchers often struggle to recruit participants when they do design a study. And so part of the purpose of a biobank is you already have this, this bank of data that will live into perpetuity in the future that when you come up with a new study 10 years from now, you have a bank of data you can go and already investigate. And so, so just to again, kind of put that in context is like, we, we can be studying things in the future that we can't even fathom at this moment. That's such a good point. And you're absolutely right. And, you know, that was another uh, frustration that I had when I first started um, working on this project. I was, I was shocked at how so many of the resources that are, um, that exist today are not transferable. They're not usable into the future. And not necessarily for bad reason, but um, one of the biggest things that we're working on is a really transparent consenting process. We want our participants to know what they're getting 
involved in what they're signing up for, how their samples and data will be used over time, knowing exactly what you said, that we don't know everything that's going to be researched, but we want to be open to studying things in the future. It used to be that consenting was very narrowly defined. So if you were uh, participating in, let's say, a lung cancer project, um, you would consent. So my dad would have consented to giving his samples for lung cancer research to do with chemotherapy. And that's what he would have consented for. And what that means is that ethically, researchers could not use that sample for anything else. Even though if they found out that, I don't, I don't even know, let's say my dad had a heart attack while he was in chemotherapy. He didn't, but they couldn't be using that same sample for cardiovascular study because it had only been consented for lung cancer. So it's really important that ethically we, we do only use samples in the way that they've been consented. But it's interesting that when you actually talk to participants and people who... Um, patients who've been sick, they say, well, I want you to be able to use my sample for more than more than this really narrowly defined thing if, if it's going to help. Um, so the trend in research now is to be doing a more broad consent, which exactly like you said, will allow for more types of research to be done in the future. And what it really means is that the, um, the, the, impetus, the, the importance of the investigators, so us at Coles, to be transparent and to communicate all the different types of research that could be done or, and are being done to our participants, it's, it's on us to do that. And so that's a huge priority to us, but it, it future-proofs, in a sense, it future-proofs the bank, which is exciting. Yes, absolutely. You mentioned it earlier that, you know, this cohort this is you you have lofty goals about how big <laughs> this cohort will eventually be for Coles. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that and the numbers that you hope to to aspire to. Sure. Um well, our the chairman of our board and the um brainchild for this whole project is Larry Gold. Um he is an academician and um biotech entrepreneur and he doesn't do anything small. Um and his ultimate goal for Coles is a million participants um, within the state of Colorado. So that's roughly 20% of our population. Um, it is an audacious goal, but there's just so much more that we can learn about community health and neighborhood health um, when we have those kinds of numbers. Um, but we're going to start more modestly. We're actually going to start in um, Q1 of 2022 with 500 people up in Fort Collins, and then um, we'll expand um, to a few thousand with a few sites uh, in the coming years. So the, the thing I just want to highlight is um, I mentioned the numbers before the Baltimore Longitudinal Study on Aging with 1,300 participants and the Canadian Longitudinal Study on Aging with um, 30,000 participants who are giving blood and the UK Biobank with one blood sample of 500,000. Um, with the amount of comprehensive information that we're going to have at Coles and the annual biological sample that we'll collect, um, we will be able to uh, contribute meaningfully to research well before we reach a million participants. Um, we'll be 
we'll be doing um, some uh, some studies specifically around aging with the first 5,000 participants that we hope will be really meaningful. Um, so a million is our North Star. It might take us a decade or two to get there, and I'm okay with that. You know, we we have time. To me, this is this is intended to be proactive, not reactive. And what that means is an investment of time and resources and passion to keep something like this going. Yes, yes, of course. And you mentioned that Fort Collins is the first recruiting site. So I think, you know, just for our listeners, part of this episode is because Center for Healthy Aging is partnered with Coles. Uh, we will be their first engagement center. So this is potentially a study that listeners can get involved in next year. So I wonder if you can tell us a little bit, how can people who are interested get in touch with you? Absolutely. We are just, we are so excited to be partnering with the Center for Healthy Aging um, and with the Human Performance Clinical Research Laboratory, that's a mouthful, um, at CSU. Uh, just the staff and the resources on your campus have been just uh, amazing. And everyone we've worked with has just been delightful. Um, so for folks in the Fort Collins area who want to stay in touch and learn about when we're going to start recruiting, um, please go to our website, colostudy.org. So C-O-L-O-S-T-U-D-Y.org. And there's a section there for participants and you can sign up to receive our newsletter. Um, and we will keep you posted for sure. We hope to make a few um, announcements through the Fort Collins area when we, when we launch. Um, and maybe we can get some more social media shout outs on your, on your Facebook page and um, be looking for that in early, early uh, 2022. So Meredith, this is the point I ask you the question that I ask everyone who comes on the show, which is what is your best advice for healthy aging from, you know, all that you've witnessed helping with the Cole study? Um, this is not a particularly scientific answer, I guess, but um, the more I work on Coles and the more I work with really passionate people and the more um, convinced I am that Coles is uh, a valuable endeavor, I just think that living your life with, with something bigger than yourself that you're passionate about and creating a community around that is just so, so valuable. Um, like a lot of people today, I know I have struggled with depression and anxiety and something about having a sense of purpose that is bigger than oneself just feels like the ultimate, um, resiliency factor for me. So I'm so grateful that I've been experiencing that, um, healthy aging because of my work. I know other people can find it through volunteering or community organizations or your friends, but um, having something bigger than yourself just helps put everything into perspective. And I'm, I don't know, it just, it makes me really excited for the next decades of my life that I can be contributing to something I care about. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, Meredith, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about Coles and taking double the time to talk to us about <laughs> Coles because we had some technical difficulties. So yes, I, I am so excited about this project and so excited that the center can partner with you on it. I think it's such a great thing that we have. 
well we are we are grateful and just it's been a pleasure and we can't wait to really get launched and continue working with you as well Thank you for listening to this episode of Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Center for Healthy Aging at CSU. Remember to follow us on social media at CSU Healthy Aging and visit our website at healthyaging.colostate.edu. We will see you next time.